This is the Swift by Sundell podcast, the show that answers your questions about Swift development. Hi, everybody, and welcome back for episode number 18 of this podcast. I'm your host, John Sundell, and this episode is going to be all about server-side Swift, which I'm really, really excited about. So I thought... Who better to join me as a special guest for this episode than someone who has worked a lot on server-side Swift? He is the creator of the Vapor web framework. It's Tanner Nelson. Welcome to the show, Tanner. Hey, John. Thanks for having me. Yeah, it's a pleasure to have you on. Yeah, uh, it's good to talk to you again. We met it uh, in Verona, Italy at Pragma, right? Yeah, that's right. Yeah, that was a cool time. Yeah, it was a really good conference. Uh, it's funny because so many of the guests on the show... <laughs> Uh, you know, I met for the first time there uh, at uh, at Pragma Conference. Awesome, yeah. So this must be really busy days for you. You've got Vapor 3.0 coming up, and there was also a big release from Apple a couple of days ago with the Swift NIO framework. Mm-hmm. So how are things? They're good, yeah. It has been really busy. Um, basically just working on Vapor 3 right now. I've been working on that since basically... June of last year. Um, so the team was together in Copenhagen, then London, and we were kind of working on Vapor Cloud and Vapor 2. Um, and then after that, came back to the States and just been working on Vapor 3 since. So there's been a lot of work going into it um, and getting really, really close now to the end. I can see the light at the end of the tunnel now. Um, and yeah, also have uh, a book that I'm working on with Ray Wenderlich. Uh, and that'll be coming out soon, hopefully. So really just a lot of Vapor stuff going on. Yeah, that's really, really cool. It's always exciting when you've been working on a release for such a long time and you you kind of, you feel like you're on the home stretch. Yeah, yeah, definitely starting to get that feeling, which is nice. <laughs> so you mentioned that you've been meeting uh, the team, you know, uh, across the globe. So uh, kind of how, 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 how is this team composed? Like, they're the different contributors to the open source project, and how did you put that team together? Yeah, so it first started out, um, I mean, Vapor was first created as uh, just a side project, right? Something I was working on after work. And it was really early on that Logan uh, found it, and he released a couple of articles about it that got pretty popular and uh, they were driving a lot of traffic to Vapor. And so when our sponsor uh, nodes came around and they showed some interest in the framework, they were like, hey, can we give you guys some money and you guys can work full time on this? We want to sponsor it. We want to be associated with this. We want to use it. Um, I reached out to Logan and I was like, is this something that you'd also be interested in? And he was. And so that's how the core two people uh, came together and we've been working on it since and that was uh, January it was first created and then it was about May uh, that we got the original sponsor and started working on it together and since then we've gotten one more person on the team his name's Jonas and he's responsible for all of the stuff related to Vapor Cloud and <laughs> all of the crazy crazy stuff he does to make that happen and to make that nice to use and uh, so he's less uh, involved in the creation of the framework and uh, the Swift code around there. And he 
he does the the back end stuff and makes sure vapor cloud is running smoothly oh that sounds really cool uh, one thing I really love about the project, uh, looking into it, is how modular it is. You know, there are so many different packages, and it's all seems to be split up pretty nicely. And I guess that enable you to work this way, and you know, both distributed and different people taking on different responsibilities. Yeah, I'm happy you noticed that. That's a really big focus of ours when we're creating Vapor. I think that's super important, and I think it's important to kind of Swift as a language itself too, the, the fact that you can create these things modularly and uh, namespacing and things like that. Um, but our goal with Vapor is to create tools that people can you know, create an API from using Vapor just as a package, uh, but also to create other web frameworks on. So we don't want people to have to repeat all of the work that we've done. We hope that people, even if they want to create a competing web framework to Vapor, that they'll have the tools there that they need to do that. That is a true open source mindset. Yeah, yeah. That's really awesome. Yeah, I love the fact that you can mix and match, even if you don't want to buy into the whole thing, you can pick out some parts of it that you'd like to use. Yep, I think that's healthy. I think that's what makes a, a really strong community and a strong platform. Yeah, totally. So for those who hasn't used server-side Swift yet or haven't used Vapor in particular, could you give a quick rundown as to kind of what Vapor is, uh, what problems it aims to solve, and kind of give a little bit of a kind of bird's eye overview of server-side Swift? So there, there are kind of two perspectives to come uh, looking at server-side Swift from. Uh, one is your uh, web developer using something, uh, an existing web framework like Node.js or Ruby or PHP, something like that, maybe Java. Uh, and then the other is you're an iOS engineer. Um, and so it's really interesting trying to explain what server-side Swift is to both of those groups because, uh, you know, to the web uh, guys, the guys that are already doing web development, I'm going to say, you know, <laughs> just look at Swift, look how awesome Swift is, don't you want to be using this? Uh, and then... To the iOS guys, uh, I'll want to say, uh, what are you using for your backend? Are you using CloudKit? Are you using um, something like Firebase? Uh, and have you noticed the limitations with that yet? And are you interested in a tool that's more powerful? Great stuff. So 3.0 is going to be your next major release. So what kind of big new features are you focusing on for this new release? The big headline, obviously, and the biggest change that people are going to notice right away is going to be uh, the async model and the concurrency model. And I don't want to delve too much into that because I know we'll probably be going into that later. Yeah. Um, but besides that, besides the async and the concurrency stuff, um, there's a big move to using Codable in Swift 4. Uh, when that came out, that was something we were incredibly excited about because as all Swift engineers know, uh, or at least people that have been around uh, Swift before Swift 4 and before Codable, uh, doing transformations between your native Swift types and uh, their JSON representation or whatever, uh, whatever format encoding you're using. Um, it was a real pain to do because Swift is obviously super type safe. That's why we love it. But converting to and from those types can be a huge pain. Uh, so Swift 4 Codable solved that, and that gets rid of just a ton of code that we had uh, in Vapor 1 and Vapor 2 for doing the parsing and serialization there. So we're taking advantage of that, uh, not only in terms of 
removing the need for you to define exactly these methods for going from JSON. Um, but we're, we're really taking advantage of that uh, throughout the database layer, uh, throughout the configuration layer, like really Codable is everywhere now. And we think it's a really awesome protocol and it really cleans things up. Um, so an example of that in Fluent, Codable has empowered us to take better advantage of the underlying databases that we're working with. So uh, say you're using Postgres, which supports native uh, types like point and stuff. It, uh, that database supports a lot of really interesting types. Uh, so now that we use Codable, uh, you can actually just store those. You can store like a point on your model. Uh, and we send that codable model all the way down through Fluent down to the Postgres SQL driver itself. And then it's responsible for uh, turning that type into a type that the Postgres SQL server understands. Oh, that's very nice. Yeah, so we've been able to use that to really uh, just clean up a lot of places in the code. We're really excited about that. And then the the final big change, kind of the big three, um, are async, codable, and the third being uh, a new services architecture. And for anyone familiar with doing uh, backend design, you'll probably have used a dependency injection system or an, it's sometimes called an inversion of control system in your web framework. That's not something that's as common on iOS, but it does still exist there. Uh, but that's something that's super important for the web or for backends rather. And we had a rudimentary system going in Vapor 1 and Vapor 2, uh, and they worked pretty okay, uh, but we've really remastered it in 3, and um, so far the people that have used it have loved it. It's really flexible, and we've been able to uh, build a lot of the core of the framework around this system in a way that, unlike before, um, unlike before which it was still really possible to extend and customize the framework, uh, you can do that even more now. Like really everything, really the way in which we build the framework uh, is on a system that you yourself can modify and that you yourself can extend. So I'm really excited about that part. So the framework itself kind of also becomes these like composable services. Yeah, exactly. So for instance, if uh, Vapor needs to create a, uh, an HTTP client internally to reach out to some sort of an API, um, so um, you're basically asking for something and Vapor needs to itself perform this HTTP query. It's not you doing it. Um, the, in a lot of, you know, frameworks, you might not have control over which client it uses to do that, but we've structured it in such a way that if you want to use this certain client, um, maybe you have a certain need, maybe you're behind a certain firewall or proxy or something that needs additional configuration, um, you can replace exactly what it's using, um, and you can do that in a really sophisticated way. So both for people adding on to the framework and creating packages and then people just using it and wanting to modify what it does internally, it's a really powerful um, concept. Nice. Yeah, sounds really cool. Awesome. So what do you say? Should we start diving into our questions and topics that we got from the audience? Yeah, let's go for it. Let's do it. So it was actually really exciting because we got a huge number of questions and topics uh, from the audience for this episode. So I think people are really excited about server-side Swift and getting to know it more and diving into under the hood of how things work. So we're going to kick it off here with a topic from Suhit Patil. 
And Swift wants us to talk about the advantages and disadvantages of using Swift on the server side comparing to using other languages like Java or Python. And uh, to talk about it in terms of speed and features like concurrency and threading and databases and things like that. So what do you say, Tanner? Like, what would you say are like the biggest pros, advantages of using Swift as your server-side language of choice? Well, I should start by saying that previous to doing Swift on the server development, um, I was working at a company that was using Laravel, uh, which is a PHP framework. And previous to doing that, I was doing some PHP just on the side on my own time. Um, I've actually, before I started doing this, I really uh, used a lot and really liked the Laravel framework uh, for PHP. I thought it had a really awesome design. And a lot of kind of the, the concepts of um, their slogan is PHP for artisans. Uh, you know, <laughs> and everything nice. is about the elegance, the eloquence of, uh, of programming. And I really like that. And I tried to emulate a lot of that in Vapor. Grab your cold brew and sit down in your local coffee <laughs> shop and write your artisan, yeah. artisan PHP. <laughs> yeah, the, I think it's a little cheesy technique, but yeah. <laughs> Uh, yeah, I still, I thought of it, uh, you know, I thought it sincerely and I, uh, I really liked it, but, mm -hmm. um, so I, I can't speak, I can't speak super knowledgeably about exactly the fine details of how Java and how Python work. Um, because basically the experience I've had with them is setting up hello worlds to do benchmarking against, you know, um, I think there are a couple of things you need to look at when you want to see how performant a uh, web framework is going to be. And the first one is obviously the language that it's in. So how, how performant can this language be? Uh, and that's a question that not I don't really see asked that often, or as, at least as much as I would think. So if you look at Java, that's a just-in-time compiled language, right? So it can get about as fast as any of the languages out there. It's pretty performant. Um, Something like Python or PHP or Ruby, uh, those just aren't going to be able to get the same performance at the end of the day uh, as at least Java would. Yeah, because they're evaluated languages. Yeah, exactly. It's just by design, it's not going to happen. Uh, I, you can make a bunch of optimizations, but if you start making a ton of optimizations, that means you're adding a ton more code to the situation, and that means you're either going to have more complexity or more memory usage or something. So just at the end of the day, you know, it's a different class of language. Yeah. And, and you want ideally to be in the class of language that's a compiled language. Uh, and Swift is obviously a compiled language. Uh, something like C is, off, uh, is also a compiled language. And so if, if you're looking at performance, I mean, ideally you would choose C to write your backend in, right? And so why don't we see you know, people writing their backends in C. <laughs> um, there, there's also the component of how easy the language actually is to use. Right. And so I think that's the biggest advantage to Swift. And I think that's what is going to allow it to cause the biggest disruption in web development. And that's that Swift gives you the performance of, you know, one of these really low level compiled languages that you want to, you want that performance uh, but it gives you it in a way with a syntax and all of that that is comparable to Python even. Um, and someone like a junior developer could pick this up and could start writing this. Yeah. So that's the first thing you want to look at when you're evaluating what the performance of this web framework would be. Uh, 
And it's also important too, because a lot of the benchmarks, I mean, really all of the benchmarks you're going to see are going to be hello world plain text benchmarks, right? Yeah, just like make one request, return it. Mm -hmm. And if you look at Node.js, Node.js, the core of Node.js is written in C, right? Because this isn't something that you can do in JavaScript. Um, and so for these plain text responses, you're basically all C code at that point. It, you, there's a tiny, tiny bit of JavaScript on top of that that is serving that. Um, but once you start to get into a really, really big application written with Node.js, you're going to have more and more and more JavaScript. Uh, and JavaScript is not very performant. Uh, and so that's kind of like one of those things where you want to look at the actual language itself and really look at it critically. Um, so that's the language. And I think Swift is a really, really awesome, uh, it has a really awesome mix of ease of use and it can also really kick ass with performance. I mean, that's the reason we love it on the client side too, right? I mean, we can write really, really high performance uh, native code, but still with a syntax that is very, very nice. So sometimes it can look like we're writing on a much, much higher level than we actually are, because we are just manipulating pointers under the hood, but we don't see it like in the same way that we did in Objective-C or languages like C or C++. Exactly. And that concept is even more critical when you're on the server, because uh, when you're writing a server app, really every single byte of memory you use and every instruction you run, it should really be thought about because any additional work you do or any additional layers of abstraction you have are, are going to mean worse performance and uh, less concurrency that you can handle. So less requests that you can actually respond to. And more expensive. Exactly, which is going to, at the end of the day, directly relate to how much it costs you to host this thing. On an iOS app, you know, you've got the, the power of uh, the crazy chips that they put in an iPhone and all of that memory to yourself. So it really doesn't matter if you code horribly and inefficiently. Um, you might get a bad review for your app draining your battery too quickly. But, you know, it's not the end of the world. People still use Slack. Um, <laughs> <laughs> and uh, but on the server, it really matters because you're the one footing the bill. And then so the other thing to continue answering the question by Suite is uh, the second thing you should look at is the concurrency model that the framework uses. And we'll delve more into uh, Vapors and Neo and all of that, but um, you want to be using a framework that is non-blocking. That's the key word that you should look for is non-blocking. Um, and this isn't really something that is a matter of opinion or, you know, the jury's still out on this one. <laughs> it's like, it, it needs to be non-blocking. Yeah, and just to quickly explain what non-blocking means, it's basically when you're not, in one request, you're not causing an, another request to be blocked because you are uh, you are performing some synchronous call or you are using some resource that that other request needs. So ideally, you wouldn't run... Uh, traditionally, you would run multiple requests in multiple threads, right? But you could also do things where you can have like a run loop or something where you are assuring that other executions can continue even though you are waiting for something to happen. Exactly. So if, if you are doing a blocking API, which uh, is a really nice way to design things because synchronous APIs are easy to understand and they kind of work the way that humans think a lot of the time. Um, but to do that, since you're basically stopping, you're blocking, you're halting execution, you need to invoke threads. And threads are great. Uh, threads work really well. 
um, but they just use an absolute ton of memory and CPU uh, in order to work properly. So if you're on a client, you're making an iOS app or a Mac OS app and you do a bunch of blocking stuff, you're never really gonna care. Um, but if you're on the back end, you're doing a server-side app and you use blocking APIs, that's always, always, always gonna end up being the limiting reagent uh, in improving your performance. Mm -hmm. So and it's not even like most applications will hit that actually. Most simple applications will be just fine uh, doing blocking things. Um, but it's if you start needing to handle a lot of traffic that it's going to be a problem. Yeah. And if you're designing an app, like you're trying to make the next Facebook, the next Twitter something like that, and you're building the back end for it, you want to be ready to handle that, right? You want to be ready to handle a ton of traffic if your app suddenly becomes super popular. Yeah. You don't want to wake up one morning and you realize you're on the front page of Hacker News and your server goes <laughs> down. <laughs> yep. Yeah, exactly. Cool. So yeah, obviously, uh, Swift has a lot of advantages when it comes to both the syntax and you know, the familiar familiarity. If you are an iOS developer, you already know Swift, you can start diving into it. And because it runs natively, it's compiled, it's got the performance angle as well. But what would you say are some kind of downsides when it comes to using Swift, especially if you compare it to languages like, for example, Java or Ruby that has, has a long history and like kind of a big ecosystem built up around it when it comes to the server-side parts? Yeah, so um, I think the hardest part is actually going to be also the best part of Swift, which is that it's strongly typed. And that's going to be the thing that any person coming from uh, PHP or Ruby or uh, JavaScript is really probably not going to like about Swift <laughs> at first is they're like, you know, what is all this optional crap? What is, yeah. why do I have to keep unwrapping these values? Why do I have to, you know, check if this is like this and this type matches? Like I have a uint 8 versus a uint 16. What is that? <laughs> exactly. Um, so that, that part's hard because you might have to think a little bit more about that. Uh, and that was especially hard before Codable. So Codable helped a lot with that um, because it was extremely verbose previously to um, be doing all of that type checking. Yeah. Um, so that that's going to be a hard part. But I mean, the, at the end of the day, that's what you want, right? You want to be, you want development time to take a little bit longer than uh, have issues show up in production, right? You'd rather spend a little bit more time thinking about it during development than uh, spending, you know, five hours at 3 a.m. because the server is doing something crazy and unexpected because someone sent a nil value to something that should never get a nil value. <laughs> exactly. Uh, <laughs> Famous last words. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so, um, but then the, the other piece to that is obviously the maturity of uh, Swift. And that's something that we don't have an answer for yet. You know, it's a young language. It's not even four years old now, right? Mm -hmm. um, I guess at least since it was introduced, who knows how long they were working on it before. Yeah. I guess you could read GitHub. I should. <laughs> yeah, I think it dates back I'm to actually... like 2010 or something. Oh, really? Okay. Yeah. yeah. So it's still a really young language. Um, and obviously server-side Swift, the possibility to even do that came even later. It came in 2016, uh, 20, I guess December. Uh, so it was 2015. Yeah, with the launch of Swift for Linux. Exactly. Yeah. And so, yeah, it's all very young. And um, that's something where if like you want to just, 
use something and you want to be able to Google every single problem you have with it and get 10 Stack Overflow answers with copy-pastable stuff, um, you're not going to get that for Swift. All of the answers are going to be like (laughs) Swift 2 and not work anymore. (laughs) And you're definitely not going to get that for server-side Swift. So um, that'll come with time. But um, it's, you know, it can still do all of those things. It just doesn't have the huge history of uh, that all web frameworks that have been used for, you know, 10, 20 years have behind it yet. So yeah, of course, that would be a disadvantage. Um, But I I also see it just personally as something that I think is really fun. Um, So if you're the type of person that sees it that way, then I think you would definitely not find that to be a disadvantage. Yeah, exactly. It's one of those things I feel where as long as you kind of know what you're getting yourself into, it's probably going to be fine. Mm -hmm. Uh, Because, you know, everything has pros and cons and a language like Swift, it moves quickly, but at the same time, it's very performant. It has some really good uh, characteristics in terms of syntax. It's got a huge community around it, et cetera, et cetera, right? Uh, but at the same time, you don't have that kind of big knowledge base. You don't have that, uh, you know, big history of things you can kind of learn from. So, yeah, just knowing that, I think, if, if you, as long as you kind of know that up front, I think you're going to have a probably better experience than going in with kind of maybe too high expectations or the wrong expectations. Yeah, I mean, it's it's the concept of being on the cutting edge, right? Which I yeah. think predates programming by a long time. So <laughs> uh, it has advantages and, advantages and disadvantages for sure. Yeah, absolutely. I think another thing might also be to keep in mind is kind of scalability. And we talked about uh, performance and we talked about how Swift can actually really help in that regard with the concurrency models it has, etc. But uh, since it hasn't been used so much, especially in these huge large-scale applications, uh, you know, everyone might run into kind of scalability issues as the first person to do that. Yeah, I I would say in terms of scalability, actually, that's one of the places where um, it's surprising. Swift is surprisingly good for how young it is, Mm -hmm. just because the of how really small, like the memory usage is, the memory footprint of it. And the CPU usage, it just really blows uh, PHP, Ruby, and JS out of the water uh, in terms of that type of stuff. That's really awesome. But where it's more lacking is in terms of uh, the packages around it. So in uh, Node.js or Ruby, something like that, you need to do X, you need to do uh, you know whatever weird service you want to connect to or... Uh, API endpoint that does this for you, um, like you know Stripe. Maybe you want to do payments through Stripe or something. That's actually something we have a package for. But it's things like that where you know you will you might want to be the person that actually creates that package. Yeah. Um, whereas if you're on Ruby or something like that, someone before you you know four years ago created that package. Cool. All right. So I think we should move over, move over now to the next topic. And this one comes from Daniel Williams. And Daniel wants us to talk about the new Swift NIO library. Is it NIO? 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 They told me that it's pronounced NIO, like N-E-O. Oh, like, so. like NIO in the <laughs> I was Matrix. calling it NIO for a day. Yeah, because it's a capital letter. So it's like, it sounds yeah. like it's, uh, it's an abbre- abbreviation, which it kind of is. Yeah, no, but it's like the Matrix, yeah. <laughs> right. <laughs> All right, so we should talk about the Swift Neo library. And what advantages does it have over the current server-side implementations? And in general, how will it help Vapor and the server 
side Swift community. So Apple, they did something pretty extraordinary actually. They released a brand new project at the Tri Swift conference last week. And it's a brand new kind of very low level uh, web framework for handling kind of, especially the concurrency model in server-side uh, Swift applications. So can you tell us a little bit about uh, Swift Neo and kind of how you're planning to use it or how you are integrating it with Vapor? Yeah, so this is a big one. Um, I feel like part of what I want to explain f first is a little bit of the history um, behind Vapor 3 and behind how we were building Vapor 3. Because it seems like a lot of people are surprised uh, at the fact that I was able to integrate Neo into Vapor in a matter of, I think it was released last Thursday, right? Yeah. In a matter of I, a week, it's been fully integrated now. So people are wondering, like, <laughs> how in the hell did you do that? Do you even sleep? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I've been asked that like 20 times now. Yes, yeah. I sleep a lot. Um, <laughs> it It was not hard to do. So... Going back, I said that the Vapor team was in London uh, in like June, May, somewhere around there. Uh, so it apparently happens that Apple has uh, an office in London and that for some reason, possibly divine intervention is where a lot of the Swift on server people work. Mm, perfect. So I actually had the opportunity to meet uh, a lot of them uh, when I was in London. And uh, during one of the meetings... Um, they were able to, you know, share some information about what uh, was going on behind the scenes there and obviously not make any promises or not make um, any deadlines, not give any ideas about when it would come. But, um, you know, when you sit down for coffee with the guy that created Nettie and he works at Apple and there's some secret transport project being worked on <laughs> you can put one and two together <laughs> yeah it's not too hard to put that together that it's going to look like netty yeah um so the whole design from then on was basically me researching netty looking how they do it seeing why that's good and you know researching all of that and trying to make uh the async library that we were building vapor 3 on top of look like netty and that that really has a lot of core fundamental ideas in it that do shape uh, how the framework works at even a high level. Uh, things like having an event loop, having running multiple event loops in one process. Um, those things shape how, shape the best practices that you should use even at the highest level in terms of uh, sharing instances of uh, class and things like that. So uh, it was really good that I had that knowledge going into it because I was able to design the service architecture, the dependency injection architecture, and all of that around this, uh, and so that we can create really performant services that work really well under this event loop structure. Yeah. Um, the The surprise was that I had no idea Neo would be coming out this soon. Um, <laughs> yeah. You know, I was imagining it would take another year or so to come out. So that was super exciting because that means we can fit it into Vapor three, and that just opens up a whole whole ton of opportunities for me and for the rest of the people that work on Vapor to focus on stuff that's more exciting yeah, uh, and to focus on the higher level stuff, the ORM, the auth integrations, uh, the, you know, com compatibility with external services, um, uh, which is all of the stuff people really want and is 
in my opinion, at least more fun to work on than like debugging a weird socket error. <laughs> yeah, totally. So what what exactly does Neo give you in terms of, you know, you're using the event loop to do like this like non-blocking IO, uh, like we talked about earlier. Uh, so what parts of Vapor could you effectively kind of rip out or replace uh, now that you have Neo instead? So it does a lot. And it actually does more than I thought it would do. And that part is really exciting. It even in includes like a future promises implementation I saw. Yeah, yeah. So that the that's the biggest thing it does is it defines and it says clearly and without a doubt what the best concurrency model is for Swift. And sorry if you hate futures, but it's <laughs> futures and it's promises. <laughs> and until, until Swift gets coroutines, that's just going to be what it is. And I'm so sorry, but because I don't like futures as well who does uh no one does but like that that's the best option and the lesser of many evils yeah it's the lesser of many which is you know it's a terrible excuse but uh the the solution to that is coroutines and that will come to swift eventually uh, i mean chris lautner wanted to get it into swift with swift 4 even if you read his past posts but then the concern was like well you know dispatch on ios is crazy and it we need to like have a solution for that first because coroutines and dispatch will not play nicely together. Yeah. Dispatch needs to get replaced by coroutines and that's not going to happen overnight. But yeah, the short story is they'll, they'll get there eventually. Um, but that that's the biggest thing that Neo does is it defines the concurrency architecture. And luckily enough, that was the same one that we had designed and same one that we had been working with uh, for the past months working on Vapor 3. Um, the other thing it does is... It provides TCP uh, and TLS, so basically the actual communication layers that you're going to be uh, working over. So the protocol that your uh, Twitter app idea, you know, whatever it is running on iOS, how that actually communicates to the server. Mm -hmm. They handle that, and they provide a really, really awesome abstraction over the idea basically of of that type of communication right and they call it um they call them channels and channel pipelines and it's a a concept where you can take really any transport protocol really any communication protocol and uh, express it as these event driven channels which it sounds like a lot of jargon and it is <laughs> but it's really useful because that means that we can design Vapor and we can design, for instance, our database drivers, which are pure Swift and already on top of Neo, uh, in a way that is generic. So if someone comes and they say, you know, I have this new thing, uh, a competitor to TCP, which is awesome, uh, like Quick is, is, could be that in the future, QUIC. Yeah. Um, so if they come to you and, and they have that, you know, our, our MySQL implementation is going to work on that. Yeah, exactly. Uh, even though we never in a million years imagined that that might be something it would run on. I mean, that's the big benefit of expressing something like a, like a pipeline where you have all these like composable steps that don't really know about each other. They're just talking to each other through a very, you know, well-defined interface where you just have, you know, different operations working on something. In this case, I guess it's a stream of bytes, basically, like, a, mm -hmm. you know, like a data stream. And you all, they all just manipulate this input and then produce an output. So you can, you know, replace one operation in the chain and the rest of the chain can work just as before. Exactly. Yeah. So like our 
MySQL implementation, for example, now it's, it's just one of these generic bytes to MySQL packet streams. So you could really get creative with that and do something amazing where, you know, who knows where the bytes are actually coming from. You can also use this for testing really well. Yeah. Uh, you create some sort of a fake server that produces these bytes. Um, so that, that part's really awesome. Mm -hmm. And that replaced a lot of um, the Vapor code. It was about 15,000 lines, which sounds like a lot. Um, <laughs> but most of that is uh, the C implementation, the HTTP parser implementation. Mm -hmm. I haven't actually done the math on how many uh, Swift lines of code it was, but it was probably a lot less. I think that that file must be like 10,000 lines or something. I don't <laughs> wow. know. It's a, it's a big, big file. Yeah. Um, but yeah, it, it replaced a lot of code and a lot of the code that I personally really did not like maintaining. Uh, you know, like I said, I like working on the high level features of this and I really did not think it was super fun or super appropriate for someone creating a framework to be also creating the, you know, all of the layers underneath that. It was something that we had to do because we had to do it. Getting yourself out of the TCP business. Yeah, like I do not <laughs> want to be in the TCP business. Maybe in the future, but not right now. Right. <laughs> maybe, you'll, maybe you'll pivot to that in the future. Yeah, exactly. And I mean, if you look at the team that Apple got together to implement this library, uh, I mean, it's, it's the creator of Netty. He works at Apple now, and he's the one that created this. And if you take a look at Netty, it's been one of the most well-received, used uh, uh, networking implementations that I know of. Yeah. And it a lot of people really like it and it does a really good job. And I think that Swift is a better language than Java. And I think that Swift Neo has the potential to be more popular than Netty and faster than Netty and better than it in a lot of ways. And I think that Apple is going to be using net uh, using Neo to run their internal services. Um like, I, I can't say this surely, but I'm pretty confident that uh, things like iCloud are built on top of Netty. Yeah. Uh, if you just connect the pieces, that seems like what they would be running it on. I might be totally wrong, but uh, it's my guess that they're going to be using Neo to build those things going forward. Like, whatever their new iCloud is that is totally top secret <laughs> and they're working on right now. <laughs> um, I mean, another one of the guys that contributes to Netty is the... Uh, the manager of the cloud services there, which is basically Apple has an entire uh, branch that is just AWS. It does all the things AWS does, if you're familiar with Amazon Web Services. But obviously, since Apple <laughs> would never put any of their code on service that they don't own, <laughs> yeah. they need to have an internal version of that. Um, and so, yeah, it, I think that's something that they're going to be using internally going forward. Yeah, it feels like there's definitely something larger at play here with the whole mm -hmm. Swift on the server kind of story. It's It yeah. seems like right now people might look at it and be like, well, there's a couple of people writing, you know, Hello World in a on a Linux server on uh, on Heroku. But I think definitely we're seeing, we're seeing just kind of the starting point for something much, much bigger, especially when it comes to Apple's own work. And I... I just am still surprised that it's something that Apple open sourced. Like, it, you know, it's just, I guess it's part of the new Apple going forward, but it's it's really, really a good piece of software, Neo. And it's amazing that they're giving it away for free. And I think it's really going to disrupt uh, web development and like the server side backend community 
Yeah, that sounds really cool. I can't wait to see where it goes and how different people are going to use it in the community to build things like Vapor and other tools. Mm-hmm. Awesome. So speaking about the kind of long-term uh, vision for server-side Swift, we have a question here from Gilad Ronat, and he wants us to talk about the current state of Swift on the server and the vision for it within the near and the distant future, what it would take to get there. So we talked a little bit about, you know, Neo being open source, you know, it sets a clear direction in terms of kind of the concurrency model and these things and, you know, provides the kind of fundamental building blocks. But where do you kind of see this whole going uh, in terms of of the language and in terms of, um, of of the features that you think Swift on the server implementations will have going forward? Yeah, so we we definitely have a big vision for what server-side Swift will be doing in the future. And, um, I mean, if you look at first Swift's vision, uh, I, there's like a tweet or something from Chris Lautner and I, the context is, uh, you know, Swift is after world domination. That's its ultimate goal, <laughs> yeah. which is probably a joke, maybe a joke, perhaps not. Well, we'll see. <laughs> uh, <laughs> yeah. So server side Swift is just one aspect of that. Um, of course. And I think that the Swift team is really wanting to see that succeed. Uh, and so that that's part of Swift's vision uh, itself. Um, but in terms of our vision as, you know, being distinctly in uh, the server-side Swift part of that, the back-end part of that, our vision would be in the future having a really good integration between uh, iOS and uh, the back-end. So front-end and back-end integration. That's kind of the next big milestone on uh, looking forward. Yeah. Uh, is figuring out ways to, you know, share more code between those and make it possible to create uh, really cool new stuff going forward. Uh, and a big part of that will be uh, when SPM finally, the Swift Package Manager, finally gets integration with Xcode. Yeah. Uh, and then you can start... Uh, bringing in dependencies into your iOS app or your Mac OS app. And with Codable, you could get some really cool opportunities where you have the same struct or same class definition on your server and on your client. Uh, So it's just a matter of serializing that over the wire from your server to your client and your client parses it. And if you think about what that is, that's type safety over your networking protocol. That's type safety over the internet. You can almost make like these nice opaque APIs on top of that, where it, you know, as the API user, you don't really know if you're talking to the local database or a remote database. You're just making an async call to get a model, and then you get it either like a cached version back or you get the model back from the back end, but it's all kind of opaque to you and you don't have to worry about this stuff. Exactly, yeah, I, and that would be super cool. And things like Protobuf, uh, it's, I think Google uh, created it, uh, or at least they're a big advocate. It's uh, a way of serializing models, uh, you know, things that are in memory in your language into a, pro- a protocol that's suitable for tr- uh, the internet. And, you know, currently we use things like JSON for that. Uh, XML has been used for that, but mostly it's just if you look at the entire web, it's JSON. Mm -hmm. Uh, But if you're talking from a type-safe language to a type-safe language, uh, it makes a lot more sense to use something like protobuf where you have that type information embedded uh, 
JSON can only have, I think it's string, integer, and double that uh, are the base types that it can actually represent. Yeah. So you're limited there. Uh, so that that's one of the goals going forward is really tight integration uh, with the client. I mean, we want you to be able to build a Vapor app that feels like you're integrating with CloudKit or something. Mm, exactly. But you're in full control. Yeah, exactly. CloudKit's really nice to use. Uh, but then what happens when you need to make an Android app and all of your data is in CloudKit? You know, you're kind of locked in and that sucks. Yeah. Uh, if you're using a, a Vapor server, at least you... Uh, can expose a JSON API or, you know, whatever else you want for that Android app. Uh, and looking even more into the future, uh, especially with Chris Lautner working at Google now, uh, maybe we'll see a Swift integration uh, in Android, right? Yeah. And I don't think that's outside the realm of possibility. And uh, it seems like now that he is at Google, he's focusing a lot more on Swift. If you look, he's become active in the community again, which is awesome. And you know, that's just a, a whole nother realm of possibilities that could happen if you know confidently that you're running Swift on um, your Android mobile app. You know, you're running it on the Mac OS, iOS app. Um, with WebAssembly in the future, you could potentially be running Swift uh, for a front end, you know. Uh, web app yeah. type thing. And so, you, yeah, you can just go crazy with ideas. Swift everywhere. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> That's really awesome. So, yeah, we've got we've got big visions. We'll see how far any of them go. But so far, it's looking really good. Uh, I, one of the really big goals in our vision would be, or was that someday Apple would provide the networking layer for Swift. And that seemed crazy at the time. And <laughs> look where we are now. So yeah. That's awesome because it really allows you to focus on writing the integration part and the actual top-level APIs. Yeah. Awesome. Um, cool. So speaking of API design, we have a question here from Clay Ellis, and he asks you, how do you plan to keep Vapor Swifty while still keeping in line with standards developed over the years for server frameworks? So here we would have things like, you know, you're making your HTTP, or in this case, you're responding to HTTP requests. And you have things like you set up your routers with things like get and post and things like that. And, you know, you have to, for some regards, you have to uh, keep in line with the kind of terminologies and the, the naming uh, of standard networking practices. Mm -hmm. So how do you kind of marry that with, with Swift API design and the whole ideas that Swift brings to the table. That's something that I don't think I go a day without thinking about is how we can push Swift and how we can push the idea of being Swifty. Um, I think that's a, a really cool concept. Um, I, I don't know if I could put another word on it, a better word on it, like you know, being Swifty, but it's wanting to make something, uh, make a really good abstraction kind of at the end of the day. Yeah, and make really good code that's uh, works really well, but also there's this aspect of uh, it's enjoyable to use. So we we think about that a lot. I say we, me and Logan, when we're designing these APIs, you know, we want them to be uh, Swifty. Yeah, and I think that Vapor is as a framework, it kind of pushes that more than uh, I've seen a lot of other frameworks do, and kind of test the bounds of how much we can do. Uh, for example, we uh, have taken protocol-oriented programming incredibly seriously. Uh, you won't find 
uh, an instance of subclassing anywhere in the entire Vapor code base. Wow. It's all protocol based. That's great. Yeah. And, and that's been awesome. It makes my life as a maintainer so much easier. Uh, and then things like code paths. I mean, those just came, or key paths, sorry. Uh, those just came in Swift 4 and already in the, in the next version of Fluent, uh, I'm making a lot of use of key paths there um, to create some really, really cool new APIs. So uh, I guess one of the examples I want to share of uh, how you can use key paths with Fluent is, um, so when you're building a query to your database, uh, you use something called a query builder to do that. And so say you want to grab some users uh, whose names are John. So you would create a query builder on the user table, and then you would add a filter to that to filter by name equals John. Uh, so with Fluent and key paths, uh, you actually create a key path to that property name uh, when you're creating the filter. So if you're not familiar with the key path syntax in Swift, you do a backslash and then dot and then the name of the property. And um, if Swift isn't crashing on you that day, it will <laughs> produce the code. Yeah. And that code has the type information about that property on it. And so it knows that user.name is a string. And so after you type dot filter and then open up uh, your parens backslash dot name, uh, you can put one of the operators there like equals equals mm -hmm. that you would want to do for John. And now on the other side of that operator, Swift is expecting a string. Right. Uh, and it's expecting either an optional string or a non-optional string. And that allows you to do some really cool stuff. Like if you have uh, some static extension to string, so you've extended uh, to add your name as a stored property on it, maybe, which doesn't make a lot of sense why you do that. But uh, you it, it could autofill that in because it has the type info. Yeah. Uh, a really cool usage of that is if you're filtering on an enum type. So let's say you have a pet struct and it has a type. Uh, and this is either cat or dog. Uh, so when you type backslash dot pet equals equals, and then you type a dot on the other side, it will autofill either cat or dog. So you get this really, really nice syntax where it's, it basically reads dot filter type equals dog. Yeah, you get these really expressive yet very type safe predicates, really, instead of having to construct these SQL queries by strings. Exactly. Yeah, so that uh, that part's really nice, and uh, it just it like it makes a whole class of uh, programming errors that you can make, especially as a person learning a framework or learning this language. It it just makes a whole class of those errors impossible. Yeah, and I think people will really like that. Another thing I saw, which I really liked, which uh, you know really is a very core feature of Swift to me when it comes to this kind of API design was the fact that you use throwing APIs everywhere, where you are you know registering your router, you're registering, you're responding to a GET request on a certain path. You can just you know use throwing, throwing synchronous calls in that closure, and that will automatically bubble up and return an error code to the client. Yep, and that's another case of protocol-oriented programming. So uh, we have a protocol called abort error. And if an error you throw conforms to that, you can declare uh, the HTTP status code and the HTTP reason uh, that you would like to declare. And that's that's just part of the, the protocol and how they define error messages. Um, 
And so you can just conform your error to that and then throw it and it will feel like a part of the framework and it will feel like a part of HTTP. And it's just really that easy. Yeah, that's really cool. So what have, what have been some kind of hard parts when it comes to this? Like where do you kind of draw the line of where you optimize for kind of swiftiness and where you keep, you know, keep consistent with, with web standards in general? We basically start with <laughs> seeing how far we can push it and trying to push it to the max and then back off if uh, it's not possible. Mm -hmm. uh, and there's still a lot of things that Swift needs to figure out how to do better. Um, like the ideas are all there with the generic system and um, with the type system, but then you'll just hit things that it can't do. Uh, like everyone who's used generics in Swift will know the associated type problem, right? where you add an associated type to your model and, and suddenly the model is useless and you can't do anything with it. <laughs> um, and, you know, things like that will be solved eventually and we'll be able to push these ideas of keeping things Swifty and giving the compiler as much information as possible about what you're trying to do so that it can help you along the way when uh, you might mess up. Awesome. So that was the last question that we have time for today. Uh, those were really, really good ones. Thanks a lot to Suhit, Daniel, Gilat, and Clay for sending us those questions and topics. If you want to submit a question or topic for an upcoming episode of the show, you can go to swiftbysundell.com slash podcast, or you can just go to at swiftbysundell on Twitter and just send your question or topic there, and we'll pick it up and talk about it on a future episode. So we've now reached the end of this episode. So all that remains is for me to thank you very much, Tanner, for joining me on this episode. Yeah, thank you so much, John. It's been great. Yeah, it was a true pleasure. Lots of fun stuff and always great to talk about server-side Swift. So you mentioned uh, in the beginning that you've been working on a book with uh, Ray Wendelich. So um, is that out yet or it's coming soon or what's the status? Yeah, so it is available for pre-order right now and there going to be releasing a sneak preview of the book hopefully soon that will have the first few chapters in it. So definitely pre-order the book. Uh, there's going to be a lot of really awesome stuff in there. Uh, we have the whole core team uh, helping write the book and a lot of really great contributors from the community on it as well. Uh, Tim uh, is writing a lot of the chapters there and also created a video series which is already out right now. Awesome. Um, but yeah, that'll be coming in the spring and definitely pre-order it if you haven't already. Perfect. Uh, we'll put a link in the show notes to, to do that. Uh, and for everything else, where should people go if they want to find you and start working with Vapor? Definitely come to the Slack, vapor.team. Perfect. That's the URL for it. Uh, and on Twitter, where can people find you? At Tanner0101. Perfect. All right, you can find me at John Sundell on Twitter, and you can find everything about this show and the weekly Swift blog at swiftbysundell.com. Thank you so much for listening, everybody, and I'll talk to you on the next episode.